Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, December 4th, 2016. The share ID for Friday, December 2nd, is 9314. That's 9314. And this morning, A Vision for You presents Abstinence, the Beginning of Recovery, the Doctor's Opinion. In step one, the compulsive overeater is confronted with the stark reality of our, our powerlessness. The, unman the unmanageability of our lives has driven us uh, perhaps to the rooms of OA. And we learn that if we are to recover from our disease, surrender is essential. The big book, our, our, our basic text, uh, actually devotes 51 pages to the first part of this process of surrender which is to admit that we have a problem that we simply cannot help ourselves with, no, no matter how strong the desire. And the big book authors begin uh, by describing the physical and mental symptoms of this alcoholic body and mind, and later we are, are given the opportunity to acknowledge that we qualify as, as alcoholics, as compulsive overeaters. And yet, before we can do this, we, we need to know what the difference is between an alcoholic and a non-alcoholic. And so, much of the section called the doctor's opinion is based on, on two letters uh, written by uh, William Duncan Silkworth, Dr. Silkworth, uh, the chief physician at Towns Hospital in New York. And, uh, you know, putting the, the syringe or the, the shot glass or the fork down is merely the you know the ticket to the dance it's the ticket in the door and you know this this morning um joining us this morning to share on this topic of abstinence and the doctor's opinion is esther c from canada and as a recovered compulsive reader esther i hear her on the line she's i can tell you she's been a devoted advocate of the this practical program of action found in the big book and so i'm delighted to welcome esther c to the line esther good morning Good morning. Thanks so much, Larry, for your service. Good morning, my fellows. My name is Esther C., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Canada. Um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit of, today about my journey and how my abstinence has evolved in the program of recovery and, and also how I came to excuse me, understand the importance of clean and honest abstinence. And in that way, I'm able to deepen my relationship with my higher power and and especially been free of the obsession to eat compulsively. I'm actually not going to go through the doctor's opinion line by line or anything like that, but I will use um, different paragraphs and things in the big book to, you know, so we could know how, what we learn about abstinence from the big book. Uh, I've been a compulsive overeater my whole life. I remember that food was always on my mind from the time I was a very little girl. Either I was obsessing over my next bite, wondering where it was going to come from and what it was going to be. I was pining for my binge foods all the time. Uh, or when I got a little older, I was restricting and dieting. This food was always on my mind. I don't remember, I, I don't have the experience of doing a lot of the extreme eating maybe that I've heard about on the lines, but I surely must have been eating a lot and eating all the time because I managed to work my way up to my top adult weight. It was about 260 pounds. <clears throat> In, in 2007, in the spring of 2007, I came to the program of recovery in what we come to know as a pretty mangled state. At that point, I was desperate. I had a lot of health problems, and my desperation allowed me to be willing. It did happen at the time. I first ended up in phone meetings, and the meeting that I landed up in 
was a group in Overeaters Anonymous that had a very specific food plan. And there, your sponsor would tell you what your binge foods were, and not only did you have to abstain from your binge foods, but you also had to abstain from your sponsor's binge foods. So if she didn't eat it, I couldn't eat it either. Now, at that time, I didn't see how these one-size-fits-all food plans can even hinder the recovery process. I did not understand at all what the nature of my food allergy was. I was not directed to the big book, to those chapters where I might have learned about what being abstinent means. And I was technically abstinent, you know, according to my sponsor. Even though I was abstinent, I was still doing a lot of interesting things with my food. I was still using food to sort of make me feel good, to regulate my moods, to sort of get that, uh, you know, the life is good feeling. But I'll I'll be um, picking that up a little bit later. Um, anyways, none of this stuff bothered me at the time because I was losing weight and I was feeling amazing and my body was feeling better and I was buying new clothes and I was getting lots of compliments. And you know what I learned then? I learned that the body's going to feel better as it sheds excess weight if I'm not stuffing it with junk. But that doesn't mean that I'm have, that doesn't have anything to do with recovery. That's just some of the gifts of not feeding my body junk food. But this pink cloud stage was feeling quite nice. I, I was really enjoying it. It was very, uh, what should I tell you, pink, you know, really nice. Um, this pink cloud stage lasted, believe it or not, for a couple of years. I was able to stretch out that absence for a couple of years. That's about how long it took me to get to pretty much a, a healthy weight. But because I hadn't done the step work properly, you know, we used to read bits and parts of the big book and bits and parts of other OA literature. We talked about 12 steps and we shared about things, but I, I had not done a systematic going through of the, of the steps of recovery and certainly not for the big book. So on that account, I wasn't recovered. And eventually, what we keep talking about on this line, that's going to happen, happened to me. That mental obsession reared its ugly head. And I started feeling hungry again, even though there seemed to be enough food on my food plan. I would even say that I needed less food because I was probably still a good 10 pounds away from my, you know, what I thought might be a, an ideal body weight. And I remember constantly arguing with my sponsor about the changes I wanted to see in my food plan. I thought I needed more because I, maybe I was getting older. I, I, I can't give her all kinds of excuses. And again, to tell you the truth, I, although I was technically abstinent and I was obedient with my sponsor, I, I was still doing very interesting things with my food, different interesting ways of eating. But again, more on that coming up. <clears throat> Excuse me. Eventually, the pressure of the mental obsession builds up, and as we know, we know what happens, we know that cycle of disease. The pressure builds up, the obsession has its way, and I relapse. Um, at that time, my pride prevented me from calling it what it was, uh, from calling it a relapse. I, I, I called it a slip, whatever that means. I, I justified calling it a slip because all I'd really eaten was, you know, a couple of extra snacks and big bags of chips over a couple of days. And I thought, you know, potatoes and oil and salt are on my food plan. I, I don't know if this is relapse, this is just a slip, whatever it was, you know, the food didn't just plop itself in my mouth by accident. There was something else going on. Um, slip is one of those euphemisms for relapse. I've heard a few in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. I remember what somebody once telling me that she's not technically abstinent. And I, and I thought to myself, well, what does that mean to be technically abstinent? Like, are you, aren't you? You know, you hear that a lot from people who maybe don't know what being abstinent means. I, I also once was at a meeting and I heard a speaker say that she'd seven years 
of back-to-back abstinence, except once a few years ago for about 20 minutes. And again, I was all confused. I didn't know what that meant. I, I guess there's a lot of denial in saying something like that. I, I mean, there can't be anything worse than relapse, except maybe being unwilling to admit that you're in relapse. Anyways, at the time that this happened to me, I'd been attending a telephone big book study, such as the one that we attend here on A Vision for You, and I heard about the concept of being recovered. I heard from recovered compulsive overeaters, and I listened to some of the shares on the line, and I said to myself, <clears throat> I said to myself, that's what I want. I already did a couple years of the white-knuckled abstinence, and I saw that it didn't work for me, and now I was ready for something else. So I ran, not walked, to find myself a sponsor who would take me through the big book, through this 12 steps as outlined in the first 164 pages, of the big book, and I wanted to finally recover. I sat by the phone, and I called people. I said, could you take me through the big book? Could you take me through the steps? It was amazing to see how many people had years of abstinence, had not completed the steps, but were willing to sponsor me, be my food sponsors. Nobody was willing to be my big book, uh, my recovery sponsor. Anyways, thank God I found somebody, and little did I know that I was going to learn a lot more once I opened the big book. I was going to learn a lot more about what it means to be abstinent. So if, you, if you've got your big book there, you could open it up. As I mentioned, I'm not going to go through the chapter line by line, but I am going to point out those paragraphs or phrases that teach us about abstinence or maybe highlight some important points. Um, one of the things I'd just like to say at the outset is when you read the chapter, the doctor's opinion, before you even get to a deeper understanding of the chapter and about the program of recovery, one thing is very clear, and that is before I embark on my spiritual journey, what we call the 12 steps, I need to be abstinent. Um, this uh, Today's special edition, I think, is titled Honest Abstinence, the Beginning of Recovery, you know, suggesting that it comes first. But I, I would like to also say that it's the foundation of recovery because if there's no foundation, you, your recovery isn't going to last. I mean, uh, you all know that no one builds anything without a proper foundation. Sometimes the foundation takes longer to build than the rest of the building. So I don't have to tell you that because if you've had the experience of not having done the steps properly, you know that already. So if you open your big book to the chapter called The Doctor's Opinion, I just want to point out a couple of places where it's pretty clear that abstinence comes first. If you look at page Roman numeral XXVI, you'll see there in the first full paragraph, um, in our belief, any picture of the alcoholic, this is the last line in that paragraph, in our belief, any picture of the alcoholic, which leaves out this physical factor is, incom- is co- incomplete. So there's going to be no no recovery if we don't understand that the first thing that has to happen is that we need to be, um, we need to address this physical factor that for us is being abstinent. Further down the page, um, the second last line, it says a man's brain must be clear before his approach. Again, <clears throat> Before they would approach the alcoholics, they would have to clear them of their uh, alcohol. Next page over, XXVII, also at the bottom of the page, it tells us there, of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. Um, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure, etc. So this, and there's, I think there might be a couple more in the chapter, are all t- teaching us you've got to be abstinent to have a clear head to get through the program of recovery. All right, now let's get on to what does it mean to be abstinent. So on that same page that we just finished reading, page XXVIII, that's Roman numeral 28, there's a very seminal paragraph there, and I'll just read it here for you. 
It says, we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomena of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all, and once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, the problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. So that line there, uh, the action of alcohol and these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of allergy, that teaches me that I experience an unusual reaction, which they call an allergy, to certain foods when I put them in my mouth, when I eat them, and that I can't stop. I'm allergic to certain foods. Now, I buy that, and I think it's certainly true for me. Um, and then even before I came to the program of recovery, I knew that there were certain foods that somehow when I ate them, I couldn't stop eating them. But what is the reaction I get from eating those foods, right? So if you ask somebody who's allergic to strawberries, I know someone who is, she gets a rash. Whenever she eats them, that's the manifestation of her allergy. She gets a rash, right? One of the students in the school where I work, she gets an anaphylactic anaphylactic reaction to tree nuts that's her allergy to tree nuts that's her reaction she has this you know closed up airways um another type of friend of uh, another type of allergy a friend of mine gets a severe stomach a reaction when she eats certain types of foods so these are all people who have allergies and these are the things they're allergic to and these are the manifestations of their allergy how does their allergy manifest themselves they have certain reactions But what about me, the compulsive overeater? Do I get a rash when I eat certain foods? Do I get a stomachache? What's what's my reaction when I ingest my allergic foods? So this paragraph teaches us um, a manifestation of an allergy that the phenomena of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So what does that word mean, phenomena of craving? I mean, when we think of craving, the way it's more commonly used, it's a craving would be like a feeling you get when you there's something that you want very much and it's on your mind. You know wh- whether you've had it or not. A craving just means it's something that I I feel like I want. But the big book is using it differently. This this paragraph teaches me that when I eat my allergic foods, then I experience the phenomenon of craving. A craving is not what happens to me when I feel like oh I wish I could have a candy bar. That phenomenon of craving is something that um, happens to me once I started eating my binge foods. Um, first, I eat my take. A, first, I take that um, bite, and then I experience the phenomenon of craving. So, what does that mean? What does it mean? What does phenomenon of craving mean? Right? It's not a rash. It's not a stomach ache. But it, to me, what it means to me is that the desire to continue eating those foods intensifies, and at that point, I can no longer predict if I'm going to stop, when I'm going to stop, and how much I'm going to eat. At basically, at that point, I've lost all control. I'm completely powerless to predict the outcome of the first bite of my allergic foods. It's like a cra- it's like a crazy game of Russian roulette for me, right? You, you pull the trigger and you're wondering, is this bullet going to kill me or is it not, right? Is this bite going to lead to a 10-minute slip? Is it going to lead to a week-long binge? Is it going to lead to a five-year relapse or maybe even my eventual death? I don't know. And so that's why I abstain from eating those foods. These are my allergic foods because I cannot predict if and when I'm going to stop. So fine, now I know that I can't eat allergic foods or binge foods. Some people call them trigger foods, whatever you want to call them. We all have foods that we know we can't eat because once we start start eating them, we can't stop eating them. So which food should I be abstaining from? How do I create a list 
of, of, of binge foods or trigger foods. How do I know why are trigger foods? So we'll go back to this chapter, back to this page. If you look at the bottom of the page, <clears throat> last paragraph um, reads, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. So that line, men and women drink essentially because of the effect produced by alcohol, that was completely new information for me. I already knew well before I came into Overeaters Anonymous that there were certain things that once I started, I couldn't stop. That I, I knew before I, even as a little kid probably. But what I didn't know is because is what this paragraph teaches me, and it teaches me why I why I even pick up those foods in the first place, right? Why would I eat something if I know I can't control it? And what this paragraph is teaching me is that I don't eat compulsively because my mother underfed me or overfed me, and I don't eat it because my parents did or didn't tell me they loved me or because I was too pampered or too strongly disciplined or I did or didn't grow up in the right country, in the right place, with the you know, in the right schools. No, this line is teaching me that I eat certain foods because of the effect that it has on me. I don't, you know, you hear people say that they eat food because they like food. Well, I'll tell you the truth. I don't like food. I don't like cookies. I hate cookies because they ruined my teen years. They ruined my 20s and my binge food ruined most of my 30s. I don't, I don't like what my binge foods, I don't like my binge foods. But what I like is what the cookies do for me. Cookies do for me what cucumbers never do for me. And they don't, and cookies do for me what they don't do for regular people. I know people take a cookie, they say, wow, this was amazing, and then it's over. It doesn't do something for them. It doesn't do for them what it does for me. What it does for me is it makes me feel good. It turns, like, the, the, you know, the fire down on my feelings. I feel good when I eat them. I feel better when I eat my binge foods. And that's why I continue to eat them, even when I knew that I couldn't control them. In and out of program, I had this problem. These foods, my binge foods, have a certain effect on me. So when I'm creating a food plan, which foods do I need to eliminate? Those foods that have that effect on me. And when I examine, you know, when I start going through my list of all the things, right, that I think are my trigger foods, I start to see a pattern of food ingredients and all those foods. And now these are the things that I need to eliminate from my, you know, from my, uh, from my living, from my food plan. So when we when we use the big book as our compass for absence of recovery, we're all unified on what the problem is and what the solution is. I believe that every single recovered person on the line has the exact same abstinence, right? We're, we are all abstaining from our binge foods, the exact same abstinence. We're abstaining from our binge foods and eating behaviors, which I'll talk a little bit about later. Um, we're abstaining from those foods that create that effect in us. And depending on how long I've been abstinent, I should be at or moving towards a healthy body weight. That's the exact same for all of us. That's the OA statement on abstinence. I think it goes something like this. Abstinence is the act of refraining from compulsive overeating and compulsive food behaviors while working towards and maintaining a healthy body weight. So we all, all recovered people, have the same abstinence. But what's different for all of us is our food plan because since we're all physiologically different, right, we're different ages, different stages of life, different height, gender, activity levels, everything. So all of our food plans are going to look different, but our abstinence is the same. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but OA history, 
as far as the little that I know, has been characterized by what I like to call food fights, right? There's always arguments about what is or isn't abstinence. There's a lot of the my way or the highway type of thinking. And if you look at all the splinter groups that Overeaters Anonymous, so many of them are defined by their food plans, what they eat, what they don't eat, right? They're not necessarily defined by an approach, let's say, to the steps, but mostly they have a certain way that they feel everyone should be eating, and suddenly that becomes their, you know, their guiding principle. I mean, if you open our history book, Beyond Our Wildest Dreams, you'll, you can read about a lot of these things. Um, and, you know, a lot of these, you know, food plans or in, in the splinter groups, they rely on a lot of teachings and uh, sometimes dogma from things that are outside sources. They don't really have a place in Overeaters Anonymous. Um, we, we don't have opinions on the health or nutrition of, of certain foods. The only thing we can talk about is, again, back to the big book, what, what does it mean to abstain and what does it mean to have an allergic reaction to, you know, binge foods? Anyway, so I was working with my sponsor, and the first thing that I was taught to do was to make, take a piece of paper and a pen and, and to draw a box, and she told me to list in it all my, uh, the foods and food ingredients that I don't eat. And at the time, she gave me a few questions, you know, because sometimes it's hard. I mean, some of the biggies we know, but um, it's sometimes hard to determine what our binge foods are depending on what stage of, um, you know, we're, whether we're like in relapse or whether we've never been in overeaters anonymous, we never had a chance to think about things like that. So she gave me a couple of questions which I'll share with you, which helped me jog my um, thinking, my memory as to what might be a binge food for me. So if you've got a pen and a pencil, you might want to write it down. If you don't want to, you could always listen to the recording. Four questions for those of you who like four questions. Okay, one, what are the foods that I first run to for comfort? I know everyone will say I even binge on salad, but when I started a binge, um, you know, what are the types of things that I would go to when I wanted to seek that ease and comfort? Number two, what are foods I have tried to control? This is a really important question for me. Even today, as a recovered person, this, might, this question might speak to people who have been absent for a long time. Um, if there's a food out there that I'm trying to control, more or less, more or less, then that's a, a good sign that it needs a second look. Another question, question number three, is this food a substitute for another food that I really want? Am I making myself an interesting kind of dietetic ice cream or abstinent cake because I can't have the real thing, so I'm going to try to make something like it? And I eat it, and it feels exactly the same as the other one, right? Although it's technically the ingredients are different. Um, that's something that I might want to think about. And the last question is, and again, this was a really important one for me, which foods am I constantly negotiating over, whether to myself or to others? That also needs a second look. I also find this with people who have been in recovery for a long time. Like if if I'm constantly going, you know, yes, bananas, no bananas, yes, bananas, no, then then I'm not, again, I'm not uh, negotiating with myself over cucumbers, right? Those are like no-brainers, you know? So that's also something I might want to think about if I feel like the food is not peaceful. So once I have this list, right, my uh, sponsor told me, create a nutritious food plan. You could go to, I guess, a nutritionist or a doctor or whatever, whoever your healthcare provider is. I think most developed countries usually have a website where they have sort of the best information available that's current, and they'll tell you, uh, you know, what a healthy food plan looks like this you know if you don't want to spend the money or if you're you don't want to take the time to you know run out and go to nutritionist uh, i always say it's a good to look at them anyways because you'd be very very surprised at what um um you know doctors associations consider standard serving sizes yes we'll all be very surprised 
Anyway, so um, create a nutritious food plan, and you can put on it any food you want, any food you want, except the ones that are in that little box that you made that list in, right? I've got a tangible list of my binge foods, so I'm not going to forget what they are. Um, you know, I'm not going to not be sure what they are. It's all there on paper. And one thing I found, my sponsor also taught me, that a written, written commitment is a lot harder to forget or overlook, right? Which could be why some people don't like to do it, which is why some people don't like to make food plans, because if I'm going to sort of have whatever at lunchtime, it makes it a lot easier for me to sort of stick things there that I shouldn't be having, because once I sit down and say, this is what I'm going to be having, you know, then it's a lot harder to, it feels like a broken commitment if I don't have it then. Anyways, um, I know that if stuff food's not on my list, then I'm welcome to have it, and and then I'm good to go. So that's where I learned to create a food plan, right? And since I'm eating to nourish my body, right, that's at this point, food has become for me not something I do for fun or for socializing or for, to feel good. It's something I do to nourish my body, and I'm not eating anymore to regulate my moods because um, I did that and it didn't work. Um, this is, was a very important step for me. I, I had to create a food plan. Like in addition to knowing what I needed to eat, I needed to know, well, how was I going to eat it during the day? I can't just eat when I get hungry, quote unquote, when I get hungry, because to me, every emotion feels like hunger. Boredom feels like hunger. Anger feels like hunger. Happiness feels like hunger. Anxiety feels like hunger. I mean, how, how did I get to 260 pounds if, if not by eating only when I was hungry, right? So that's why I have a food plan. Because then I'll know approximately, you know, which parts of the day I'll, I'll be eating something, right? I mean, for most of us, it's pretty simple. Breakfast, lunch, supper. Some people have snacks, whatever it is. Um, but the word plan and, and the word food plan implies that before I eat, I've decided what I'm going to be eating. And, again, I, I feel a written commitment is harder to forget a, or break than just a verbal commitment. So I, I just want to go back to what I was talking earlier about the one-size-fits-all food plans, and I'll tell you that they didn't work for me. And as I mentioned, I was doing strange things with my food, and I'll tell you a few of them. I think I've shared them before on the line here. I remember that first sponsor and one of those food programs, and she was reading me. You know, she had this, like, book where she read to me what I could and couldn't have. And, for example, she told me I could have a quarter chicken. So I used to go and to the store and get like a rotisserie chicken and I'd cut into four pieces. They weren't so even, whatever. Of course, you can imagine which of the four uneven pieces I would choose and I'd eat it and the family would get the rest of it. And, and you know, le- you know, and the next day I'd go back and get another chicken and again cut into four, not such even pieces. And, you know, and she'd say to me, you know, we'd talk every day. She said, are you absent? Yeah, I'm abstinent. I told you I was having a quarter chicken. I had a quarter chicken. But, um, Again, still trying to get that little bit extra, right? I remember also that she had um, taken me off, uh, you know, sugars and things, but she permitted sweeteners because that was because she ate it, so she let me eat it. And I thought, woohoo, you know, who needs sugar? We've got all this other, you know, artificial sweeteners. And I started to put that stuff on everything. I was putting it on my oatmeal, on my chicken, on my salads. I like, I, I couldn't get that need for the sweet taste out of my mind. So I start to put it on everything. And, and, and at the end of the day or the morning when I would talk to her, she'd say, you're absent. I'd say, yeah, I'm absent. And in my mind, I thought I was absent. But still, it's a, a little weird to be going through an entire, you know, one of those boxes of, of Splenda in a week. That's strange. And that's it was just what I was eating. I'm not talking about my family members who are eating that. That's not, it's not normal behavior for somebody. But 
to her, I was abstinent, right? All's well, I'm abstinent. Um, another thing, and this is more related to food behaviors, is that sometimes it's not foods that I'm eating that feel good and cause the phenomenon of craving, but sometimes it's, it's abstinent foods that I'm eating that create that same sensation. And that sensation could either be in my body, right? There's some things I eat, even if I would like ingest them, you know, intravenously, I would, my body would feel it. But there's some things that my body maybe doesn't recognize as being a trigger, but my mouth, it's like something about the texture that does something in my mouth or something about the way I'm eating, it does something in my mouth. Like, for example, eating while driving or eating while reading. I remember for a long time, I would weigh and measure, let's say, a, a, a lunch, and I would eat it, you know, eat it while I, I read the paper, and I thought, you know, I could eat and read because my food's measured anyways. I'm not going to overeat, but... I noticed that every time I'd be done with whatever I was, when the food was done and there was still more reading to go, I always would get this empty feeling. I mean, I didn't think about it then because this was a little bit late in recovery, but eating and reading was another one of those activities I used to do. It's like, let me just get away from the world and like just let me feel good. And that was a way for me to feel good, reading and eating. And I remember in my, in my, you know, my pre-overeaters anonymous days, like I would know, I would, I would buy certain foods knowing how many of them I would need to get through a novel, right? Like I would sit, you know, for a long winter's night and wanting to get through a novel and think, okay, that's going to take like two bags of chips and, you know, whatever. Not a chocolate bar because you want something you could sort of put in your mouth one at a time, you know, like M&M's type of thing. So, so even once I was absent, the eating and reading, something about it left me with a longing and it, it, it meant like another look for me. And today it's something that I don't do. It was very difficult for me. I, for a while I actually had to take off my glasses when I was eating because just my eyes would be darting around wanting to read, wanting to read, you know. Um, eating while the computer is also something I only discovered after I went back to work and sat in front of, you know, a monitor all day and ate my lunch in front of the monitor. And again, I'd my lunch would be over and I'd look at my container, right? I, I brought my container. There's nothing more to eat, right? And I'd say, it's, it's over? Um, hmm. You know, should I be having, I'm, I'm working now. I, I should be having like an extra fruit. I'm putting out all this energy. Again, the mind starts to do interesting things when I'm engaging in behaviors that trigger it. So that's another thing that I had to stop doing. Um, eating while driving, even eating, you know, or doing something else. So one thing that I used to do a lot in my early days in Overeaters Anonymous when I was on these one-size-fits-all food plans, right, because she insisted that I weigh and measure everything, which I did, but I, what I would do is I would choose the food selections that were the bulkiest, right, like lettuce or cabbage, and then and then my protein, I would choose the protein that took like the longest time to eat, which I, which I discovered was soy nuts. If you eat them one at a time and you buy the saltiest type and you're eating all this lettuce and you're drinking in between, and boy, you could eat your abstinent meal, not be even an ounce over what you're allowed to eat and feel like you're so stuffed to feel so good, right? I'll tell you something, my friends, there is, isn't a single, if this sounds weird to you, it's maybe because you don't have that experience, but there's no sponsor in the world who's going to know which foods and which ways of eating are going to create this, like this uh, sensation in you. We all need to be sensitive. I need to be sensitive to which foods give me a certain feeling. Um, I admit that a brand new member might not notice some of these subtleties, which I did not, but slowly as I grew spiritually, I was sensitized to certain sensations and, and feelings when I was eating. Now, by the time I finished my steps and I was recovered, I had a relationship. It was a very new one, but I still I had a relationship with my higher power. Um, so as time goes on, if I see 
And this has happened to me a lot, you know, periodically. If I see that there are new foods that start to talk to me, start to create longing in me that I'm starting to obsess about, that I'm trying to control, or new foods that have ter- start to turn me on now, which they never did in the past, it's time for me to put them down. Now, again, I don't know if it's only because I noticed that years after recovery, because my taste buds have become more sensitive, you know, now that I'm not eating all that junk food. But over the years, there have been foods that I've removed from my food plan, and they're, and they're not necessarily ingredients that could be you know, I'll give you an example. I also mentioned this once in a line. My brother-in-law goes to Costco. He finds these crackers. He calls me up. He's got, he says, Esther, I found something you could eat. Because he knows food prep for me is always, you know, I've always got to be prepared. I can't just show up someplace and hope there'll be something for me. So he sees something there. He brings it home. I call my sponsor. I read the ingredients. This happened a few years ago. She says, Esther, it sounds good. It's all stuff that you eat. Great. This is great because now I don't have to prepare it. And when I travel, I can put it in a little Ziploc. So I, I, I actually eat a grain at every meal. It was lunchtime. I, you know, measured it out, had my portion, ate, and I said, "Well, great, good. This is this is wonderful. How how easy." Um, and then comes supper time, and normally supper I usually have some like hot dish, right? No, nope, but I'm having these crackers again. I measured it, ate it, great. I basically ate those crackers as my grain selection three times a day until that box was finished, um, which is not usual for me, uh, especially of course it's it's much more expensive than you know boiling up rice or potatoes or whatever it is. And after that, you know, this is a Costco, right? So it's like a, a huge box. It's not like, you know, you know, two days you finish it. It could take, it could take like four or five days of, of, of eating it three times a day to finish the box. But once that happened, I said, I don't know what it is about these crackers. I don't know what it is. I, I, I tried to check. Is it the high salt content? But whatever it was, I couldn't have any more. I called my sponsor back. I said to her, you know, let's go through the ingredients again. She says, look, Esther, I can't see anything offending, but if it's triggering you, that's all you need to know. It doesn't matter what's in there. I found that I experienced that the same issue with, you know, either very high fat or high salt foods. Um, like if it's concentrated, you know, oil in a salad didn't seem to bother me, but like, you know, very fatty proteins and things like that or very sweet, sweet fruit. So once I started to notice these things, I, I had a choice to make. And because I was recovered, I made the choice to save my life, and, and who cares about these foods? Now, I'm not suggesting that you go home and remove all of the foods I've just mentioned from your food plan. I believe that as you become more spiritually sensitive, you're going to sense which foods call you. So this is where I believe that one-size-fits-all food plans could backfire for some people. Because if I'm already feeling deprived, abstaining from my binge foods, abstaining from my sponsor's binge foods, and abstaining from foods that don't trigger me, so when I'm going to come across some, something that's kind of talking to me, my feeling's going to be, gee, like I'm already down to the wire. I'm not eating much anyways. Maybe if I don't tell my sponsor, it'll be fine. When, you know, because I would mistakenly think like as long as she, like as long as she didn't say I can't eat it, it's okay. But uh, that, that's not covered behavior. And I'll be honest with you, I remember from those days when I first came to Ovary Designers, there was a lot of shopping around for sponsors based on their food plans. We were all hoping and praying that our sponsor would be one of those reasonable, moderate people and wouldn't make us eat in crazy ways or limit us too much. Today, I don't have a reason to lie to my sponsor about my food or to lie to myself. I, I'm pulling the trigger on myself when I continue to eat foods that I shouldn't. I, um, I remember once arguing with my sponsor about a certain food. And she said something to me that I'll never forget, and I repeat to everyone that I that that, that I, I talked about, you know, abstinence. She said, Esther, I don't care what you eat because I'm going to be recovered no matter what you eat. What you eat affects your recovery, not mine. 
So to all my dear sponsors and fellows out there, I tell you the same thing. You could eat whatever you want because I don't care because it doesn't affect my recovery if you want to eat something that you shouldn't be eating. I mean, hopefully by the time somebody recovers, they're not going to want to eat their binge foods anymore the same way that they don't want to eat rat poison because they know it's going to kill them. I've heard people, I've heard this line in uh, in a way where people say that everything, I heard a lady, a couple ladies share that everything they gave up had claw marks on it, claw marks on it, right? I guess because whatever it is that they had to give up, they didn't want to give up. And I remember experiencing that again early in recovery. But once once I was recovered and I grew spiritually slowly day by day, I didn't see it like that anymore. For me, growing spiritually includes having a clean and honest abstinence and then making any changes, I need to keep it clean. If there's a food that's creating in me a longing for more food or more anything, then it's time to take a second look. Why would I want to jeopardize what I have over what? It's just the food, right? Why would I want to give up the life that I'm living? Um, so I don't feel like I have to like give up something or or you know force my sponsor to wrench it out of my you know hands. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about, which was also an issue for me for a long time, was volume. Um, I'm just amazed. I'll tell you, I was when I first came to Overdesign, this was a really fat person, and I was amazed that over the years, I would meet people who had claimed many years of abstinence, and they were still really large. I, I couldn't figure out what that what that was about. Um, even today, either fellows and program, and I don't mean ten pounds overweight, fifty, sixty, seventy, like people that would be, you know, called obese. Um, claiming many years of absence. So when I once asked someone, oh, and here's your doctor happy with where you are, and so she said something about having spiritual abstinence, but the physical abstinence is like still on its way. And, and I never really understood that because I, I'll be honest with you, if I was still fat and OA, I'd probably leave because I just wanted to get, I wanted to get slim. I, I didn't want to be fat. I, that's why I came to OA. I didn't want to be fat. So I I don't know what what's the, what's the attraction of OA um, if if the all you the best you could do is feel a little bit better about yourself, but still be very very large. Um, I mean, I know what it, what the attraction is in eating a lot. That's for sure. I know, but uh, I don't know if I'd still be around if I if I was still overweight. I don't know if I if I would have uh, not been looking for something else. Meaning, maybe trying to find the person who'd also been very large and ask them what they did. But okay, I just have to worry about my own program. Anyways. In the program of recovery, I think that portion sizes need to be appropriate, right, for me, uh, because the OA statement does include that little clause that we need to be maintaining moving towards a healthy body weight. So back to my experience, I still have a little bit of weight to lose. This is before I was recovered, and I found my new sponsor, and I'm, you know, arguing with her about some issues of volume. Um, I, I said to her, look, we, I know, I know, I, I have foods that are allergic, but could you tell me how eating too much triggers me? I mean, there's, there's no. But how does feeling full trigger the phenomenon of craving? This is something I couldn't understand, right? Because it's not a specific. I'm eating just my. I'm eating, you know, clean foods. How does eating too much of them trigger the phenomenon of craving? Um, this is also where I often talk to people who've been in and out of the program, and they'll say, "Well, I haven't picked up my, you know, my bad binge foods." but I'm eating too much. And I guess they think they're not triggered the phenomenon of craving, but, but this is not what my sponsor ta- taught me. She taught me 
this is where she taught me about eating behaviors. And she said that certain ways of eating my food can also give you that sense of ease and comfort. As I mentioned to you earlier, like eating and reading, that feeling of oh, life is good, life is better, I'll be fine, it's okay. And especially when I'm eating a lot, when I'm stuffed or overfull, if I've had more than just enough, I, I feel good. I, I, I want that to have that feeling because then I feel like I can manage my life. So volume is clearly a problem for me, but why should, why should an eating behavior be a problem for me? What, what's so bad about feeling like I'm having a miserable day, coming home and manipulating my food so I can like feel stuffed, like you know the, the food's practically coming out of my nose? What's wrong with that? So, so this is what I, what I think. You know, I once heard someone on this line actually say this a couple of years ago. She said, if I am overweight, I am overeating. So I thought about it. If I'm overweight, that means I'm overeating. And if I'm overeating, meaning that I'm eating more food than my body needs, that means that extra food, right, is doing something for me besides nourishing my body. I know how much I need to nourish my body. I'm clearly eating more of it. So what's that extra food doing for me? That, what is that extra food doing for me? It's giving me somehow something um, more than just taking care of my bodily needs. It's giving me something. And, and, if, and if that's the case, if that's what food's doing for me, then I'm not going to be able to throw myself into the care of my higher power if I've got some other type of behavior that I'm leaning on. And this would apply to all eating behaviors that give me that effect. It could be volume, or for some people, they could eat their entire day's worth of nutrition and like, you know, all at the end of the day, you want to come home from work and it's been a miserable day. Or some people I know like say, okay, this is how much I'm eating today, and they just have little bags and they just nosh the, the whole day, taking little bits and little bits, you know, eating while standing, eating while driving, eating the first part of the meal while I'm preparing the second part of the meal. I could find ways to zone out and feel good, so to speak, using the food, but to still be technically absent of my binge foods. Now, if you're going to tell me that I can't get that feeling from my food, right, I can't kind of wrap up my day with like a, uh, you know, feel good type of fullness. So where am I supposed to be getting it from? Well, if you're recovered, you already know the answer. Um, recovered people now live on a new basis, and that is relying on God to provide us with a sense of peace and all rightness, right? By living life according to his will and staying unblocked to be able to discern his will. You know, you know, and I know that if we've got something else in our life, that's the main, you know, the main thing, if something else in our life that's bringing us that security, how am I going to sort of be left feeling vulnerable and turn to higher power? And something that I've learned slowly as I live life as a recovered person and doing my best every day to deepen my relationship with my higher power is I learned of this, what I think is a very spiritual and godly state called enough. Enough is actually a new place for me to be. I've always lived in not enough or more or too much. Most of my resentments and my fears I examined in step four showed me that my biggest complaint about life was that I didn't have enough of the things I wanted. I wanted more food, more money, more respect, more honor, more validation, more action, more stimulation. It was never enough. I, I almost killed myself trying to get more out of life, and not just with the food. I was doing the same thing with the food. I was afraid that if I wasn't stuffed at the end of the meal, then I would starve. To me, it was like if I wasn't stuffed, I was starving. And I met a lot of people who are afraid of putting down the volume. And you could tell who they are, right? You, they've been absent forever. They're still overweight. And I'm not saying that we all need to be twiggy, but 
you know, I, I need to take an honest look at, am I at a healthy body weight? And if I'm not, why not? Now, look, people's got conditions and issues. And one thing I've learned is that when you lose a lot of weight, like I have, you can't put all that extra flab. It doesn't disappear that stays. So we're never going to be, look exactly like the people who only had 20 pounds to lose. But we all got to be honest, that's for sure. Um, you know, I, I was speaking to someone who had once told me that she would take her oatmeal in the morning and she'd add tons of water to it and she, would, she found this like these tiny, tiny, tiny spoons and she'd eat it slowly, right? This is so, so her breakfast would last like 45 minutes. I'm like, wow, 45 minute breakfast. And she said, yeah, it feels so good. I don't know. I mean, you know, I guess there's technically nothing wrong with that, but I'm not sure if she's available now for, you know, proper, um, you know, if she's available now for whatever her higher power, you know, is directing her. Anyways, for me, volume triggers the phenomenon of craving, like the gambler or the debtor or any other addict who isn't addicted necessarily to a substance, but rather to behavior. I've got both, right? I've got substances and behaviors in food. Eating too much or getting too full, that kind of behavior sets me off. It's something that triggers the phenomenon of craving. So for me, it's something that's got to go. And not only do I get to enjoy a healthy body, which is a great bonus, but I'm not being triggered by the food anymore. Because once I drop that behavior then the longing for that way of eating goes, and I maintain that neutral attitude towards food, right? The one that we read about on page 85 of the big book tells us what life is going to be like once we've recovered. This is not um, taking the tiger out of the cage three times a day that also I've heard in the rooms here. It's so, I don't know, why do people say that as if it's a good thing? Who wants to live with a tiger? Do you want to live with a tiger? I don't want to live with a tiger. And I don't have to live like that anymore. On page 85 of the big book, it says to us, we, have, uh, we feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not sworn off. The problem has been removed. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. And that's, to me, a much more uh, exciting way of living, a much more desirable way of living than uh, wrestling with a tiger three times a day. And I don't think that anyone else needs to live like that. And I think that, that I'm grateful that we have a place where we can go to and learn a different way of living. We're neither cocky, nor are we afraid. So just to wrap up, I, a clean and honest abstinence, foundation of recovery, the daily spiritual practices, now that I've gone through the 12 steps, allow me to be uh, the best vessel, the best recipient of God's, of God's power, of God's uh, blessings, the best Esther I could be, so that my higher power now could fill me with his power, which I, as you know, so desperately need to stay recovered on a daily basis. And it allows me to contain that light of my higher power and, and hopefully, to the best of my ability, to reflect it to everyone I meet. And this is, to me, what it means to be recovered. And God willing, it'll be for all of you on the line. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Esther, thank you so much for your for your share this morning, presentation this morning. It was, it was great. Um, so we're going to now transition to questions for Esther. And what you can do is you can pose a question for her by pressing star one to unmute. So who has a question for Esther? Press star one to unmute. Effie K. Hi, Larry. This is Raquel from Israel. Raquel. Gotcha. Who else? Gladys Gladys. I got Kathy, Raquel, Gladys. Did I miss somebody? Camille. 
Camille, and anybody else? Okay, let's go with this uh, this first group. Let's start with Kathy K. Good morning, Kathy. Hi, Larry. Thank you for your service. Uh, Esther, it was just wonderful to hear you today. I learned so much. Um, I have a question. Well, I have two embedded in one. Uh, first of all, I did not write down the fourth question that you asked of uh, sponsees. If you could repeat that to help them figure out their trigger foods, I would appreciate that. But my more important question is, given that we begin with sponsees in step one, there is the possibility that it will be difficult for them to be honest about trigger foods at the beginning. Um, at least that's been my experience. And I wonder um, how you handle that as you work with a sponsee. Do you uh, expect that their trigger food list and food plan will evolve over time? And if so, um, how do you handle that in terms of your work with them? Do you just keep asking them to consider, or is it the fact that they may um, get triggered and lose their abstinence in the early weeks? I would just be interested in your thoughts about that. Thank you. That's a great question, Kathy. And um, to answer your first question, that that fourth idea to consider is whether it's something that they're negotiating over. So that answers the first part of your question. Is it a food that they're ne constantly negotiating over? That might be more of a question that would apply to someone who's been in program for a while and has, you know, had tried various types of food plans. It might not necessarily apply to someone who's basically been eating for the last 10 years and, you know, just stumbled into OA for the first time because um, they probably haven't been negotiating foods, right? I find that that's a behavior that sometimes people who've been around for a bit. Okay, and to answer your second question, I think food plans do evolve. And what I've what I've learned um, over the years in working with others is that it, it's a much more organic way of learning when it's something they figure out on their own. So as long as they've got what sounds like a reasonable food plan in it, and for the duration of the time that we're going through the steps that they're willing to make a commitment to what it's going to be. Like I'm, I don't even insist that everybody put everything on the scale unless they feel that, you know, that's a problem for them. But if they're willing to make a commitment to something and it looks reasonable, it's good enough for me um, to start with. Again, it's a, like you'll, I'm sure your experience has been that there are people who come in and they're brand new in a way. That's more of a rarity. But, there's, but then there's also people who've been in and out and have been, been in all the splinter groups already. So maybe for them it would be a little different. Um, maybe if there was something on their food that they included on their food plan that you know raised a, an eyebrow, I might mention it or something. But um, when I force them to eliminate something that I'm pretty sure should be eliminated and they don't want to and we argue it, it doesn't have sort of the same effect as when they come to it on their own, even at the expense of picking up. I'll, I'll always say something. I'll say, you know, I don't know that many people who eat potato chips as a starch. I think it might be a problem, you know, and they'll say, no, 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 I've never had a problem with potato chips. It's certainly okay for me to have it, you know, as my, my grain selection for breakfast, let's say they'll say that. But then I feel I've done my part. 
the other thing to consider is that there, from the time you start working with someone till the time they actually admit powerlessness, you're going through quite a few chapters. They're going to be writing their history. Th- that could be some time right there where, you know, their absence might be broken up a bit with slips and things like that. I mean, once they've admitted powerlessness, step one, then from there on, they, they've got to feel that whatever they've committed to, they're sticking to. But until then, you've got that time to work with where they're starting to feel like, you know, maybe in two days, you're still in the doctor's opinion, and she'll call you back and say, you know what, I don't know if I could do the chips things, because every time I have that, I have the whole bag. Um, so that's, I can't say there's one way that I do it, but um, those are some guiding principles that I keep in mind, you know, when I do that. Does that answer your question? I'm not sure if there was a part of your question that I missed. No, that's good, Esther. Thank you so much. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you for the question, Kathy. Okay, we have Raquel next. Raquel, good morning. Raquel, we can't hear you. If you could press star one. Hello, Larry. I can hear you now. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's unmute by by itself if you don't uh, have to put your name on. So I sometimes don't remember. Thank you so much for your service. And, and our dear Esther, thank you so much for being so precise and so honest and, and so, so to the point for me to have heard you now because um, I've, I'm, I'm coming up to eight years of abstinence and a little bit of recovery um, being sprinkled in by God. And I'm trying to, uh, and and I have like the 12th, on the 12th of, of December, it'll be, it'll be eight years. And um, I started working with someone who, um, I met her at this kind of meeting where they are very, very strict and, and people are not allowed to talk um, until they have seven days of abstinence. And it happens that this person does not want to um, does does not want to uh, to call into a sponsor, and she does not want to admit that this. Well, that that will come later. But she uh, she cannot speak. She cannot be part of the group by not being allowed to speak. There there is some sense in it, but somehow it touched my heart that she wanted so much to share, and I decided to take her on to put her through the doctor's opinion, which they don't do in this meeting. She's very bright girl. And sitting with her a couple of times last night, she came out with this, but I don't have an allergy. You can try me with a whole loaf of bread and with a, with a, with a whole um, box of chocolate. And if you tell me that to eat only one slice, well, then this person maybe does not have the problem. I don't know. Or it may be just tremendous stubbornness and and really not being able to do that step one, and even if if, if Bill and Dr. Bob and and let's throw in Abby too into the and maybe Roland Hazard will be in the room, it's only the disease will, will convince her, and I'm just wondering, you know, whether I can continue doing this work. It would be of value just to go through the doctor's opinion with her, and maybe 20 years later, uh, the disease will come in and be our best advocate. Because I know that that's what happened to me. So how how do you 
you know, what do you think, Esther, is is appropriate to do here? I is think that continue? my best my best uh, advice that I ever got on this line was that my business is just to stay recovered, and that would be how I would help other people. I would sort of have a natural understanding of what needs to be done next. If your meeting has a rule that one is required to have seven days of abstinence, I don't know if you mentioned it was like on their terms or their specific abstinence, and she does not, and but she wants to share, and you feel bad about that. So the person with the problem is you, um, not her, right? So right, you, <laughs> right, and you can right. and decide why you're so bothered by the fact that she can't share, even um, especially you say given that she's intelligent or whatever, or maybe she needs it, or if she had the opportunity to share, that's. It's not a question about abstinence. That's more of a question of, you know, why you're taking care of her. She obviously doesn't care enough to get seven days of abstinence to share herself. So I see. Or to to be willing to. Okay. Thank you very very much for your insight. Thank you so much, and for everybody, have a wonderful continued recovery. I pass. Thank, thank you, Raquel. Okay, next up we have uh, my friend from Chicago, Gladys. You're up. Good morning. Good, good morning. Um, this is Gladys, composable overeater. Uh, really enjoyed the sharing. Um, kind of like wrote it down, my question, because uh, what I wanted to say in my question, because I was like feeling a little jittery this morning. Uh, from being uh, complete absence. <laughs> um, okay, you you talked uh, a lot about the fact uh, that you're being schooled and that you know how you would get that feel good feeling, and I I I, I found out that uh, you know my uh, definitely my uh, addictive food was uh, definitely sugary, they're sugary. Um, and for years, when I, when I would eat them, you know, like not, you know, even even before I knew I was a compulsive overeater, and even uh, afterward, like the doctor opinion said, it, you know, it was so elusive, you know, that effect. But it's like at the end of the road, you know, when I would eat some of those binge foods or some other the newer foods that I found out I was uh, uh, allergic to, I would become, like, confused and disembobulated, you know, and I had, like, some experience with uh, drugs and stuff. And I could kind of relate it to that, but the food was almost, like, worse. Like, I couldn't even function. I couldn't, like, do basic care things or chores or anything. So... With that, but my question is, is that like a sign of the effect or is that like part of the progression of the disease? You're saying that there are new foods that didn't create that effect in you previously, but they do now? Even like if I ate some sugar or, you know, some some certain foods that uh, wasn't like sugar-related, even like if I would eat them now, I immediately, you know, it's, it's almost like, oh, I feel like something happened. And and um, just say, like, if I continue to eat it again, if I produce the phenomenon, phenomenon craving and eat more, I can't function. 
I can't even do the things that I normally do because so is that like uh, a part of the is that part of the effect or is that just a progression of the illness? I would I'm no I'm no doctor, but I would imagine if there was any food that I was eating that was creating those symptoms that you described, um, it doesn't seem to be what we should be happening when we eat you know, in or out of, whether we're in or out of programs. So if there's not some physiological reason why that food is a problem, then it could be that then it's a food that creates that effect in us. And again, it doesn't have to be a particular type of food. Sometimes eating off my food plan at a different times or spontaneous eating also kind of feels a little ticklish and good. Um, but the symptoms you've described um, sound pretty strong. That would definitely push me to have a second look and to discuss it with my sponsor or even a, a doctor if that if that effect was so severe. Oh. I, I haven't had that effect from from the foods I eat, you know, in my normal everyday food plan. And if I did, I would say, whoa, I remember um, I put down certain types of nuts but not others, and I remember having a nut butter that I thought, okay, this is like different types of nuts, and I ate it, and I when I ate it, it went straight to my head. Like I thought, whoo, and I said, like the, I, the thing wasn't even finished being, and being in my mouth. And I already knew that it was, it was, I, it was never going to be on my food plan. Right. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. Cause that's part, and as long as I, you know, like identify those foods and I like stay completely absent. And like you said, honest with my sponsor and most of all myself about it, I do feel better and I'm able to function. You know, so thank you. Good luck. Thank, thank you, Gladys, for the question. Okay, we have uh, Camille. You're up. Your turn. Hi there, Esther. Thanks for taking my question. Um, thanks for your sharing. I um, haven't really heard a speaker talk about quantity in the way you've talked about it before, and it's precisely who I am with my food. I have been in program for many, many, many years. Um, and I know today that my quantity of produce and the way I eat my oatmeal is exactly the way you described that individual eating her oatmeal. Um, does give me that exact same effect that going out on binging used to give me. It assures me life is good. It assures me life's okay. It gives me that sense of feeling absolutely full and even stuffed. It... Um, gives me something to look forward to. And I think that's the biggest thing for me because what, what led me initially to my recovery was um, I was obsessed 24 hours a day with looking forward to food that I wasn't even eating, but I was just looking forward to it. And the looking forward to became my higher power. And I know today I'm in that place and I have no doubt about it. Um, and I also know that I'm so terrified of moving out of that place um, that the very best thing for me just to do at this point in my life is just talk about it and be honest about it um, because I still don't, I'm not willing to put my quantity of my produce down because I'm terrified of the emptiness in front of me. So can you just talk a little bit more about that for me? Sure, Camille. Thanks for your question. I remember being at that place. When I had a lot of thoughts about volume and that feeling of fullness, 
um, or that longing feeling that I always had when I finished a meal, but I still wanted more and I knew I'd had enough. I just said to myself, well, Esther, what's it going to be? I mean, you've been around long enough and you know the answer. So do you want to live or do you want to die? And that's, you just got to do what you have to do. And I also remembered when I had given up other foods, let's say when I first gave up the sugar, which is a real hard thing for me, I have a real, had a real sweet tooth, is that after every single thing that I ended up giving up, like once I did it, it was like, eh, like, like who, who, I didn't miss it at all. Meaning as long as I was, like the whole time I was thinking about it and continuing to think about it and when and how and this and philosophize about it, I was still in the grips, right? But once I gave it up, I gave it up. I said goodbye, and it's done. It's like when someone dies, God forbid. You have your mourning period. If you, you, could, you could have a little ritual if you want, and then, and then, then you accept that, it's, that it, they're gone, and then you can move on from there and do what you need to do. But as long as you're like, you know that feeling when, when someone's gone missing and you don't know if they're alive or not alive, that's the most agonizing feeling, and it's the same thing here. While I was agonizing over this issue of volume, I was in agony. But once I said, Esther, look it. It's very clear. You've heard it on the line. If you do not give up that type of behavior, I said, there's no one that's going to tell you to stop. You're going to tell them you ate your whatever ounces of vegetables, and they're going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, you're, you're absent, and your body looks good, so people are going to send you comp- send compensatory. But I knew, I, I knew, I can't, when you know what kills you, then you're just making a choice between life and death. And for some people, for some people, their life isn't so bad. Like, they don't mind that on again, off again, relapse. They're okay with it. They still have their jobs. They still have their spouses. But I knew that, the life as I knew it before um, program was not sustainable and life after was amazing. And so the choice is a little easier for me to make. And like they say on this line, how free do you want to be? Have you had enough of where you are that you want to move forward? Camille, thanks so much for your question. Okay, we're open for another round of folks here. If anybody would like to, has a question for us. Mary Kelly H. Carlita. Christy B. Mary H. Kelly L. Okay. I heard Carlita, Mary, Christy, Kelly. Did I leave somebody else out? Good morning. Yes, I'm here. Uh, thank you, Carlita in Washington. And Esther, thank you for your um, <laughs> every word because I completely identify. So, um, I try to come to my, I do each morning try to come to my uh, my state of being with a beginner's mind. And so I heard you say, like the question you framed for me is, am, am, as I am shifting my reliance on food for my, and, and, eat, and compulsive eating behavior um, as my higher power to God, um, these are the things I'm I'm learning about myself. That's what how I'm processing what you said. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, do, as a beginner, a person who comes to the program as fresh or relapse or, or as I just stated, I try to come with a beginner's mind, do you have a, a quick uh, spiritual practice that kind of realigns your thinking, your placement on the planet, or have you noticed what works for others, um, like saying a phrase uh, or a prayer or a question? Am I making myself clear? Yes, but did you specifically, Carly, did you specifically read about my food or just in general? 
Well, either. Um, if, if so, for, for example, do you, like a phrase that helps me is Lord have mercy. Mm-hmm. Or um, my point of power is, is right now in this choice. So do you have like those types of things you say to yourself about food, about life, about compulsivity? Yes, I, I do, but it, it just happens that for personally what I found works for me is the voice of discipline because I was fortunate enough to grow up surrounded by loving people. There have been loving people around me for most of my life, and they were so loving that I was killing myself. So I found that for me the voice of discipline works. It's, that it's probably not everyone's style because there are a lot of people out there who spend a lot of time you know, trying to love themselves and things like that. It doesn't speak to me. So I usually find that that voice of discipline. So, for example, um, if I get into self one of the things I'll always tell myself is, Esther, does it always have to be about you? You know, like I'll, I'll get into resentment and they didn't do this and they did do this, and I say, why does that have to be about you, Esther? Why do you think you're the king of the universe? You know, you're, it's not Queen Esther. Get over it and just try to be a good, you know, good servant. Do God's will. It isn't about you. And so those are the kind of things that work for me. Now, it's a not so they'll work for everyone, depending on everyone else's experience, but it works for me. Um, if I start to get into self-pity and, and about things that are, I really am missing in my life, right, or, or things that I have been through in my life, and I'll start to say, I'll listen to a song and I'll get into longing and then I'll grab hold and I'll say, Esther, you know where self-pity leads you. It leads you to the fridge. So get a grip. Feel your self-pity for three and a half minutes, and could you please move on? Do we have to hear it again? I talk to myself in that voice of discipline, and then when I do it, it just makes it just just sets me straight and moves me forward. So I I don't have a particular you know mantra now that comes to mind, but it's always like, come on, Esther, keep moving. Like you know, I I like the the sort of coaching type of uh, voice it works better than the like loving, you know, therapist type of voice. That doesn't, it doesn't speak to me. It never got me anywhere. It got me to 260 pounds. Anyways, I hope that is helpful. Th- th- thanks, Carliza, for your share. Okay, uh, Mary, uh, thank you so much. Mary, your turn. Good morning. This is Mary H., Recovered Compulsive Overeater from California. And uh, thank you, Esther. Um, That made me laugh, that last um, share, the way you talk to yourself. But my question is, um, so I've been recovered for a while, and I put down those horrible, huge binge foods that I thought I would never be able to let go of. And now I'm refining my um, binge foods or things that are still kind of blocking me. So, for example, I have... I can have a snack in the evening because I eat my dinner really early. And that snack used to be a piece of fruit and maybe some yogurt because that's what I can eat. And all all of a sudden, that's morphed into something else. And now I'm finding myself on the couch with my husband sharing a bowl of popcorn. And that's causing a problem because every time I sit on the couch, I used to sit at the table. Every time I sit at the couch, I, I get this. I get uncomfortable if I'm not eating. So of course, I realize I need to stop that. But my question is really, um, I get really nervous. Like I, I'm recovered, I'm sponsoring, I'm doing all this stuff. Now, now I'm going to ch- add this behavior in, or change a behavior, 
And I worry that if I don't do it right, like I commit to getting back to the table and eating the fruit and I end up on the couch eating the popcorn, that i got to stop sponsoring. I get this black and white thing. Okay, i got to go back to step one. I blew my abstinence. I committed to doing this and I'm not doing it. Um, so I get, that. that's my question. How do I not do that? Because then I might as well have all my other binge foods because I'm going back to step one. I'll get this diet mentality. Um, I hope that makes sense. That's my question. So what it sounds to me like is that you used to have a fruit and yogurt as your snack, and then suddenly you start to eat on the couch, and that led to having a bowl of popcorn, which it sounds like I don't know if you committed it or didn't or said I was going to do that. So it's clear to you that that's a behavior that's getting you into some areas which, are great. I don't know what your commitment is, so mm-hmm. I don't know if that is or within or without your commitment. So um, in your mind, yeah. you're thinking, oh, if I now become a perfectionist, I, I, I love when people talk about being perfectionist, because if you, if you really want to absolve yourself of anything that you need to do, just say, well, I'm a, I don't, if I get to perfectionist behaviors and tendencies, so what you're saying is, if I make a commitment now to not do that anymore, then, then if I do it, and I'm perfectionist about it, which I don't know what that means. If you say I'm not going to eat on the couch anymore, and I'm, and on top of that, I'm going to tell my sponsor in the morning what my snack is going to be, so that way I'll, you know, make sure. What's being? Why are you? What What is this about perfectionist behavior, right? Meaning you made a commitment to do something or not to do something. In this case, not to do something, right? To yes, eat at the table. To not eat on the couch. To yes, eat something you've planned. To not eat something spontaneously. Yeah, if you break that commitment, then you're basically saying to God, God, I've made this commitment to eat this way because you're the most important thing in your life. And then if you find yourself doing something else, you basically said, well, you're not the most important thing in my life, actually. You're not where I go to for ease and comfort. You're not the source, you know, my source for serenity, peace. The food is. So why, yeah, why wouldn't you have to go back and now to do some work and to find out where you've, where you've gone off? Hmm. Meaning you mm-hmm. might want to, uh, what some people have done, and I've, I've done this myself, is to take a certain behavior and to adopt it for a month and then to talk about it with my sponsor. Uh, you know, usually by the time like a week, 10 days have passed, it's already clear to me that it's something I can never do again to make sure that that's the source of my, uh, what's the word, my jitters, like, you know, that, that behavior. Because sometimes I think it's a certain food that's triggering me and it's not. But, you know, but if you're telling me that it's, I mean, you you stated yourself that you've gone from eating a, a committed snack to just having something spontaneously. Yeah. Well, it's not spontaneous. I think I committed to having a, oh. a half a bowl of popcorn on the couch with my oh. husband. Uh-oh. But but it's not okay. It, now, it, the behavior of sitting on the couch, I, I'm uncomfortable on the couch now. Does that make sense? So, so it's yeah. still a problem. I mean, it's still it's still something I need to change. I just, um, I just get triggered by change. <laughs> like this is something I have to change. And and um, and uh, yeah, I know that the answer is that ultimately I'm going to be closer to God, closer to a better way of life by letting this go. And that's what I need to focus on rather than being deprived or being restricted. And um, 
we don't have so, to view commitment like that. We view commitment as being deprived of being restricted, except that there's a there's a certain beauty in in having and having limitations. And people in general all over the world, anyone who's alive today is afraid of commitments, right? Um, because they're afraid of limiting the possibilities. But in, in allowing every possibility, they don't have the beauty of a life where they've limited their possibilities. So it's the same thing here. You are limiting the spiritual life you could be having by entertaining something that you know deep down is, is harmful to you. So instead of saying like, oh, well, I guess I'll do the discipline thing, you know, because it's going to save my life, you could look at it a different way and say, hey, I'll, all I have to do is get rid of this silly little behavior, which means nothing, um, and then I've got you, God, uh, it's no contact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's a way of looking at it that needs to shift, and uh, and it'll be a welcome change. And, uh, so thank you. I think you helped me quite a bit. Thanks, Esther. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. Thanks, Mary. Okay, next up we have Christy. Christy, good morning. Okay, can you hear me? I can. Okay, good. My name is Christy, and I'm a recovering compulsive reader in um, South Carolina. And my question is, how does a person get absent in the first place? Um, if you're continually eating over their um, emotions and things that upset them. Christy, do you want to repeat that question? I didn't quite get it. I, I think I, what I heard anyway was Christy was asking, how does how in the heck, Esther, do people get abstinent in the first place? I'm adding a little bit to it, but <laughs> I think Christy, we just that's right, that's right, that's what I was asking. We 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 talk to our sponsor. We say, okay, this is what I'm going to do, and we just do it because that's how we do anything, right? And and definitely at the beginning, it's hard, and that's where the fellowship comes in. And can keep, people could give you tips, and you keep yourself busy with meetings and fellowship and phone calls and etc. as you get through the steps, but there's no other way to do it than just to do it. Okay. Okay. So action. It's all action, boy. I didn't like taking those actions, but that's it. That's it, Christy. Thank okay, you, we got... Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, next up we have Kelly. Hey, Kelly. Good morning. Thank you for your wonderful um, um, qualification. Esther, um, I don't. My question may be more for like a psychiatrist. I'm not sure, but I was wondering. Um, I have like abandonment issues, and I don't know if you touched on that a little bit. Um, seemed like you may have um, in your um, talk, and I was wondering. Um, you know, sometimes the the fear that can come over me is so strong, and like a feeling of doom or gloom or whatever, and. Um, I just wonder if how much of that plays into, I mean, I know different emotions and different issues cause us to turn to the food. I know we get triggered and we want to turn to the food. But I was just wondering, um, you know, um, maybe do you have abandonment issues too? And maybe do, if you do, um, um, do you have someone that you talk to about it and and um, try to change things so that it's not so overwhelming and, you don't find yourself in the food because I don't want to bother like 
you know, I don't want to bother like um, my friends or my, um, I don't want to call even the net, the OAers because I don't want to burden them with, you know, I've got these abandonment issues and I don't want to burden them with that kind of a thing. Um, thank you for your question. I'll try to answer it as best I can, although I'm not sure it's necessarily related to abstinence. But I, there are a lot of people there have a, a lot of good reasons to eat. Uh, a lot of us have good reasons to eat. We've been through a lot. We we have a good excuse for eating. Um, but we gotta we gotta stop doing what we're doing because it's killing us. Uh, not it's not killing everybody, which is why people come and it maybe never seem to get it. But it was certainly killing me. So I was at a point where I was willing to do what I had to do. So if you've got something deep seated there that needs to be uh, taken care of, and it probably would need to be taken care of by someone outside the program of recovery. The big book does teach us that we should make use of professionals out there um, because they can help us. My only caveat would be that while, you know, to do the steps as quickly as you can, and while you're in this, I'm not sure if, I, I found for me it didn't work to be seeking that kind of guidance while I was doing the steps because inevitably I would be hearing something out there that would be different than what, I was listening, and there might be conflict in some way. I mean, I, I feel if you can get by a few weeks without seeing a professional about whatever it is, your abandonment issues, and work with a sponsor who will take you, like, you know, quickly through the steps, then you could spend the rest of your life as you grow spiritually dealing with whatever you had to deal with. Um, my own personal experience was that when I seek guidance outside of the program while I was in the steps, there was a lot of conflict because they, they would – you know, inevitably be upset that I was looking, let's say, for my part in things, and, you know, and they would be spending their time trying to make me feel good over, you know, the self-examination, which which took, which took, was the whole point of self-examination, to see where I need to change, right? But if it, I have mm-hmm. some therapist, you know, telling me that really what I need in life is love and pampering, and what, then, then it sort of diluted the work I was doing in the program. So that was what I decided... Um, at that time, and in the end, I actually never had to go back for that type of help. Although I do seek, you know, bits of guidance here and there for some issues that I've experienced. Well, thank you, thank you very much. Yes, that's very helpful. Thanks, Kelly. Okay, we uh, we have time uh, since we paid Esther to be here all day. Um, <laughs> not really. <laughs> can I still um, can I still a question? Sure, sure. Who's this? This is Roz. Are from okay. Hey, Roz, hold on one second. Anybody else want to jump in? Leia S. Leia S. Who else? Jane. And we got Jane. And anybody else? Mia S. Mia. Okay. Rachel, Rachel W. And, I don't think I have time. Hey, yo, Rachel. Um, yeah, I mean, let's let's see how it goes here. Thank you. If, if Esther doesn't hang up, we'll know we're good. All right. Um, Roz, you're up. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Larry. Um, Esther, thank you so much for your share. It was um, really life-changing for me, some of the things you shared. What I wanted to um, mention, uh, you didn't talk about in your share about night eating, and I wanted to ask you, um, there are a lot of food, not a lot, but there are several foods that I, I can eat weighed and measured, and they never cause a problem. But if I might eat anything, and I don't keep bad, you know, foods in my house that, that aren't what I would call healthy foods or abstinent foods, but if I eat those foods at night, 
um, then it triggers up my uh, my um, my craving or my you know desire to to not be able to stop. So I wanted to ask you to talk about um, your experience with night eating, and I also wanted to ask you. Um, you have, you happen to mention about therapy and, and going through the steps uh, quicker uh, might be a, a better approach. And I'm just curious, um, what is your version of going through the steps quicker? That's the second question. And um, I was the one that asked you about your email. If you don't, re- you know, if you could remember to leave it at, at the end, I would appreciate it. Um, that's my questions. <laughs> okay, Russ. I'm going to answer the second question first, even though you asked it second, just because it's a quicker answer. Um, I'm only saying what works for me. I, I don't believe I'm not in the health, mental health profession, and I have no, I can't really have an opinion about anything. And, and anyways, this is an OA meeting. Um, but that was what worked for me. That I, I, I just couldn't be listening to two approaches at the same time. In terms of how quickly one can do the steps, I mean, I've taken. There's a woman who got on the line, and she was coming up to two weeks vacation over the winter, and I took her through the steps. That she was willing to do two, three hours of work today uh, per day, and she did the steps in a couple of weeks. So I go at the pace of my sponsees. I don't determine the pace, but I, I'm certainly out there with the warnings. I'll say people who did it at your pace didn't recover. 100% of the people who did it as slow as you did it that I've worked with don't recover. So what I, you know, I'm here to do my best. I don't, I don't determine the pace. I, what usually happens is when they're done the work, they text me, and then we make a time to speak. So sometimes it'll take them, you know, three hours to do their homework and sometimes three days and sometimes three weeks. And it's been three years since I heard from one person the last time she did her homework. Um, So I think ideally you should do it in weeks time, like three, four, five, six weeks. But um, that's my own opinion. I know people want to take longer. I guess it depends also on availability. If all you could find is someone who's going to take three months, I guess take what you can get, but, uh, I mean, you can take a vision for you recordings. You probably got something on every one of the steps that you could listen to, you know, once every two or three days and move through the steps that way. So that's what I have to say about doing the steps quickly. Now, in regard to your question about night eating, I'm not sure I understand what you mean by night eating. Um, I know that some people get up in the middle of the night and eat, but um, is that what you're talking about? Like, I mean, don't we normally eat when our meal times are? I've eaten my three meals, I'm done for the day, it's two hours later, and the thought pops into my mind, and I go to the refrigerator, and I take out the same food that I ate absolutely, and eat that at night. And that behavior triggers up the whole addiction cycle again. Well, sure, because have you made a commitment that you're only eating three times a day? Well, I mean, I am now, but I'm asking for, you know, that's happened to me a lot. That's how I've always relapsed, is night eating. Well, whether it's at night or in the day or in the afternoon, when you eat out of your commitment, that's that's a trigger for some people. Being able to eat whenever you feel like it, when the mood, you know, overcomes you, that's how we got to where we. That's how we got here. Whether it's at night or in the morning or in the afternoon. Okay, I, I guess. Yeah, I guess I. It, it's always been at night for me, so that's why. And I've never. I don't hear too many people talk about like that impulse night eating. Well, for me, the reason I would eat more at night is because during the day I was busy. And at night, everyone, especially when my kids were little, I'd be thinking about all the things I had to do and didn't want to do and all the things I wanted and didn't have. And, you know, whatever distractions I, you know, engaged in the last two hours were sort of starting to wear off. And then it would be like, 
gee, it's been two hours since my meal. I think I read somewhere that your blood sugar could drop if you don't eat every three hours. And then I'd, and then I'd sit and have something healthy. And the next thing I knew, like I was nauseous right, <laughs> from whatever I ate. So I don't know why some people, that could be why something about, I don't know what it is about the night where people eat, but that's why I ate at night. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Ross. Okay, Leah S., good morning. It's your turn. Hey, Esther, thank you. Thank you, everyone. It's good to hear you. Um, this is Leah S. I, you were talking about volume, and um, volume of food is 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 kind of uh, it's coming up now um we're having holidays and we're having parties and i i think i'm beginning to feel a little bit anxious even though i i i don't I, there's no reason for me to feel anxious but um i was wondering what's your take on dividing your foods your meals uh, you know, at different uh, hours, uh, different times when you usually eat it at a certain time. What's your take on that? So I've there come times where I've had to do that. Thanks, Leah, for the question. Sometimes I'm traveling. It could be different reasons. Or I'm having a medical test and I can't eat. You know, so I normally eat three meals a day, and sometimes I've had to divide it into four meals a day. So when I do something diff- different than I usually do, I usually tell my sponsor. I said to her, you know how I usually have X, you know, a serving of this and a serving of that for lunch? Well, I'm going to take that one serving and instead have it at 4 in the afternoon because I'm not going to be back from my appointment until 7, and that's when I'm having supper. So once I've told someone and it, what I'm going to do, this is a fellow in program that I would commit any changes with my food to, um, then that's just the way I do it. So as long as I, I, I don't decide on the spot, I mean – it's a rare occasion where I have to decide on the spot. When I've had to do that, I'll just send her a text. I said, you know what? I opened my lunch, and my fruit's not here, so what I'm going to do is in an hour I'll get my fruit, whatever it is. I could tell her, but usually as long as I state what I'm going to do before, then it doesn't feel like a spontaneous decision based on some type of feeling I'm having. It'll be something, you know, that I've talked about in advance. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank thank you, Leah, for the question. Okay, next up we have Jane. Good morning, Jane. Good morning, Larry. Thank you so much, Esther. It's a great qualification. I'm going to try to get this question into some kind of form here because it kind of stirred up my thinking. Um, I went through the steps and um, recovered working with others. And as far as my food plan went, I felt like I had the right to kind of loosen up a little bit because I felt, I did feel a sense of um, freedom, you know, the obsession had lifted and everything. But I I think one of the things that I don't know if you can address this is looking at our 10 step or 11 step in that dishonesty um, column when it says, have I been dishonest? Is that something that we should be doing um, as far as our food goes? You know, when we look at our, our character defects, because what I what I found was eventually my food went, it got loosey goosey, and I went into relapse slowly. You know, it wasn't a really overnight thing. And um, now I'm I don't believe that I have the right to make the decision around food. I gave it to my sponsor. I work with a nutritionist with my food, 
and I'm working the steps because I have to go through those steps again. You know, I'm going through the big book again. But it's, you know, when you say we're we're eating out of a matter of our commitment, um, do we, in other words, what I'm trying to understand is not everyone has to weigh and measure. Not everybody has to do the things that I do. However, there is a sense of surrender that I need in order to turn my will and my life over to God. And that is kind of like a, a step of humility to say, you know, I can't do this. I have to turn it over to a sponsor. I can't make decisions on my own. So is it something to do? I want to avoid going into relapse again. I don't want to follow the same path. And I do believe the steps have restored me to sanity. However, I am at the beginning again. And I'm looking just for some guidance around, you know, I know for me the decision to take the first bite is the problem, not the dis- not the actual taking of the bite. So I don't know if I've given you a question, but I, I don't know how the steps play into it. But I do believe the inventory work every night does help me be honest with my food plan. So can can you put that into some context because I can. I'm just trying to understand how do I prevent myself from my mind from saying it's okay. You can go out and do what you want now because you're recovered. After all, you've been relieved of the obsession. I mean, is that my cockiness or is it my humility, lack of humility? Okay, I'll leave it up to you. But if you're confused, it's okay. It's okay. First of all, I don't. I think a person can have a, dis, a structured food plan and not necessarily be weighing and measuring everything. I usually do, especially when I'm at home. But I sometimes go places, and in my mind, I have, you know, I know what I'll be having. Um, but one of the ways, what you've described, right? You get to step. Uh, you've gone to the steps, and your mind now justifies what I don't know. Some change in your food plan, and then which led to a relapse. So one of the ways I avoid that is is by having a plan in the morning meaning i'm not even telling people what to eat but i'm saying imagine in the morning if i would say to myself you know what i'm at step 10 already so you know instead of uh you know knowing that that meaning what exactly change am i looking now to make and where is the justification to make that so that is the problem and i would stop and think like if i'm making a change in my food plan i, I have to justify it at least to myself like imagine t- today, I would say to myself, you know, you're getting older. You probably need a little bit more whatever. Uh, you know, I've heard you need more calcium. So throw in an extra yogurt at lunch. Uh, I would, wouldn't would just do that, you know, add food to my food plan unless, you know, I, I shared it with somebody else or I, really, you know, thought about it. Like you went ahead and took some liberties. Um, and again, I don't know what your commitment was. But you went took some liberties beyond your commitment, and and as you see, it didn't didn't work. So what I do is I don't make those major type of changes. I mean, I've developed some food sensitivities outside, like that have nothing to do with program. So I have a hard time finding a clean protein that I can eat that doesn't bother my stomach. So when I was doing that research, trying to find the right type of protein, I did it alongside my sponsor. I said, well, what do you think about this? And maybe I'll do this for breakfast or whatever it was. Um, you know, I, I, I approach all decisions like that as life or death, which they are. Jane, I think a lot of, question. I just want to add also, sorry, uh, Larry, I just want to add, Jane, that a lot of, like this idea of like, you know, food plan and then maintenance, that's like from a diet 
uh, that's that that's diet culture. When I met my sponsor, she said, Esther, choose a food plan that's suitable for your, you know, age and stage, and that's your food plan. I don't understand this idea that once I've got to my goal weight, then I can add food. Why don't you just eat for optimum health? That's what my sponsor says. We eat for optimum health, and then and we always eat like that. Now, as we get older, if we need less or if we, you know, get pregnant and we need more, then then as as we change, maybe our food plan needs to change. But I'm not. I think what what might have been happening is this idea that like once I did all the steps. Maybe I, I've heard people say, that, okay, are you on maintenance? I'm like, what's maintenance what? You know, I've been on this, you know, I don't change my food where I am, depending on where I am in the steps. I change my food. It's my body needs change. And that's it, Jane. I hope that's helpful. That's great. Thank you. Jane, thanks for the question. So we have two more questions here. I'm runneth, we've run it over. Um, we have Mia and um, Rachel. Mama Mia, you're up. Hi, thank you. Um, I just wanted to say thank you for your service because um, my question was already answered through somebody else's asking. But <laughs> thank you so much. I'm grateful to be here this morning. Thanks, Mia. Thanks, Mia. Thank you. Okay, we saved the best for last, Rachel. Come on, pressure's on. You're up. Oh, boy, did I scare you away, Rachel? Press star one. We can't hear you. Good morning. Sorry about that. Good I was on, I was having a muting issue. I thought it was unmutable. Thank you so much. And um, Esther C, I've been a big Esther C fan for a while now, so I feel like I know you already. And it's such a pleasure to hear you here on the line. And I really um, related to so much of what you said. You know, the idea of a sponsee choosing their food plan, the idea that we come in all shapes and sizes. You know, one time I, I saw this uh, photo. Somebody accidentally sent me a photo of an OA event and. And not, you know, no, it wasn't like everybody was sitting there with like chiseled athletic. It was like everybody's all shapes and sizes, but the main theme is is honesty, like you're saying. And if I, I know if I'm honest, I will maintain my 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 healthy body weight. And um, so it is it is a it's, it's such a powerful message this morning. I want to thank you for it. And um, and you touched on something that that comes and goes in my in my plan. And I. I, I I always say, you know, I, I had a sponsor recently who told who asked me, she was asking about her food plan and a different a specific food, and she said, you know, on Sunday, this is a few days before, on Sunday, I had this issue with my food, and I'm not sure if it's a problem. I said, well, we know it's a problem because it's Wednesday and we're having this conversation, so it's obviously a problem. And the idea of that the food we can't have drama with our food. You know, the minute my food becomes a drama, that's it's an issue. And I I really appreciate those questions that you you put out for the sponsees. And I want to just touch on this again, if you could expand on this between, you know, the difference between, you know, really truly enjoying life and enjoying the vibrancy that abstinence gives us. You know, we can enjoy our lives physically. Everything becomes more powerful, more alive. You know, the whole world becomes more alive. And sometimes even as I'm eating, I'll just feel so grateful that my abstinence food tastes so good and I'll feel really grateful for it. And other times, it is kind of like I have a lot on my plate and I feel like, man, this tastes good. You know? And um, so I, I guess like to touch on the, the idea of, and maybe I'm just answering my own question, but like, I, I know that it's, it, I can't, if I'm sitting in the drama of the food and I'm thinking about it a lot, then I know it's an issue for me, but can you just touch on the idea of that fine line between, you know, kind of enjoying your food and kind of getting, and getting lost in the food? that point that you made before. Thank you so much for your service, and thank you, Larry. Thanks for your question, Rachel. That's a great question because that's something that comes up, I think, for those of us who have been recovered for a while and we have honest food plans. 
you know, like our relationship with food at the end of the day is different than other people. And I know that there have been people who say that alcoholics have to abstain from alcohol and we have to abstain from our binge foods. But the truth is, is that there aren't that many um, drinks that a person needs to drink in a day to sustain themselves. I mean, I basically just drink water and occasionally seltzer and I could live to a, a ripe old age of 120 on that basis. But for but for us compulsive overeaters, there is a variety of food that we need to sustain to be optimally healthy. So there is a little bit more work involved, and we are intersecting with decisions in our and and food in a way that I think that maybe people with other you know substance abuses don't have. Um, so w- one thing I've uh, I just try uh, the question slipped out of my mind for a second. Uh, can we be enjoying our food? I don't know if that's what you were asking, and I've, a few people asked me. My own personal feeling is that I do best when my food is quietest. So when I cook and I know the whole family is enjoying or I have company, I cook food that I could eat and then everyone else will enjoy too, and it's usually like a little on the nicer side. But if, let's say, I know I have a stretcher, if I'm making something that I know I'm only having, I, I keep it as plain and as quiet as possible. I'm not thinking that the other foods I'm preparing are triggering me. They're not. But um, they're, they're somehow different than, let's say, a plain piece of boiled chicken and a boiled potato, just, just different than anything that, you know, you put spices on. I don't think that people should be eating foods that gross them out. Um, but if I, let's say, have a special occasion and I want to make the food special, I might decide to buy something that's a bit more expensive or that requires a bit more preparation, and that would be my way of enjoying you know, sort of honoring this occasion, because sometimes I do want to honor occasion with special food, and so that would be my way, you know, spending a little more, spending a little more time. Um, can I tell you that, that I've never come home from a long day at work and felt frustrated, and anyway, I eat supper at 6.30, and I ate that supper at 6.30, and it was completely absent and completely plain, and I felt, oh, what a relief. I, I'm sure that I've done it. It's just, you know, it's just, I eat three times a day, so it's, I, I think that's an inevitable, but how much it's talking to me and how much of it's a problem, that's where I know if I need to make any changes. So because none of that behavior seems to be an issue and it might be just a one-time sensation, then I I note it and, and then move on. But if, let's say, something I was doing was on my mind, um, that you know that would be my signal that it requires a second look. I, I don't know if there are clear-cut answers. Food is such a, it's such a big part of our lives and there's so much... Uh, it may have been even easier at a time when there wasn't so much food readily available when there were like five ingredients in the store and it you know you ate the same thing every day. I'm not sure thanks rachel that's that's and thanks that's a great question. I know heroin would be very, very pleasurable to most people on the line, although we don't do it, but an apple not as pleasurable, but it's still pleasurable to me this morning. um Thank you so much, um Esther, for your wonderful share and uh, clarity and and thank you to everyone who participated asked questions if you just hear and thanks to melanie working her wizardry behind the scenes leading us here appreciate it so we're going to close now from page 164 in the big book and then after the recorded portion um esther um, i believe be good enough to, to leave her contact information our book is meant to be suggestive only we realize we know only a little god will constantly disclose more to you and to us Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. 
See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We, will, we shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.